Welcome to our Tenebrae service. This is uh, Worship in Shadows, and this is a very um, somber, reverent worship as we remember the sacrifice of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, following the final hymn, we're going to ask that you simply leave quietly um, to the cars as you think about, as you contemplate all that our Savior has done for us. So, with that, I'll read from Psalm 121. I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps Israel will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is the shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Let us sing, Hallelujah, what a Savior. of sorrows what a name for the son of God who came ruined sinners to reclaim hallelujah what a savior shame and scoffing rude in my place condemned he stood sealed my pardon with his blood hallelujah 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 what a Yeah. 
First reading is from Acts 26 through 35. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go towards the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and he went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasures. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, How can, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before its shear is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who could describe his generation? For his life was taken from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Amen. Who was Isaiah speaking about, asked the eunuch. Was he talking about himself, or was it with somebody else? Well, Philip makes the answer very plain. And notice he says, beginning with the scripture. So Philip was going back to the Old Testament to the all-sufficient word of God. And from the Old Testament, he told the eunuch about the good news of Jesus Christ, how Isaiah was looking well beyond himself. The description of the suffering servant was a prophecy regarding Christ, and it was a prophecy some 700 years before the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And if you think about that, uh, if we think about where we're at now, Take away 700 years, that's 1323, that's 200 years before the Protestant Reformation. So the prophecy is foretold of the one to come, of the Savior to come. And notice what he says as he's reading from Isaiah. He said, he's like a sheep, he was led to slaughter. And when we think about Jesus, when it says like a sheep, he was led to slaughter, understand that he would go willingly, he would go quietly, he wouldn't put up a fight. He wouldn't be taken by force to the cross. No one would take his life from him. But he himself would lay his own life down 
Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 10. He said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. He went willingly. He went voluntarily to that cross according to the purpose, according to the plan, according to to the decree of his father. Remember, he could have called down legions of angels, but he willingly went to the cross for us. So like the lamb, he quietly was led to, or like the sheep quietly led to slaughter. Then he goes on to say, like a lamb is silent before its shear. And the lamb, of course, you know, is referring to Christ as the perfect, spotless, and ultimate sacrifice for sin. The lamb was so very important in all the religious life of the Jews and the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. At Passover, a spotless lamb, you know this, would be taken from every household and quietly slaughtered. And you know when you take that lamb and you take that knife across the throat of the lamb, it remains quiet, it doesn't fight, it doesn't kick. It barely makes a sound. So that blood was taken and it would be applied to the doorposts of the homes of the people of God. And that poured out blood provided a covering and protection from the wrath of God, pointing to the atoning work of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. And in addition to that, the daily sacrifices at the temple included both in the morning and in the evening, according to Exodus 29, the slaughtering of a lamb. So there was a slaughtering in the morning and in the evening sacrifices of a lamb every single day. And so that was a daily reminder for all the people, a daily reminder of their sin as well as the hope of redemption. In Isaiah, we're told that he would be led like a lamb who would suffer and who would give his life and who would provide redemption for his people. And it goes on to say, in his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life was taken away from the earth. In other words, this lamb was also innocent. He was denied justice. He was a sinless savior, not a guilty criminal. And you remember in the Gospels how this is fulfilled. For many false witnesses were brought forth to testify against Jesus, and none of them could give anything that would stick. They were bearing false witness. They were contradicting each other. There wasn't truth in their statements. They were false witnesses because he was innocent. Do you remember Pilate, what he said? I find no guilt in this man. Twice he said that. Even the repentant thief on the cross gives those haunting words saying, we are suffering justly We are receiving what we deserve for our crimes. But this man, he has done nothing wrong. He was the innocent one denied justice who would give his life for us. Even the Roman soldier, after Jesus breathed his last, gave this statement, a true statement. Truly, this man was the son of God. So 700 years before the incarnation of Christ, the stage was set 
really was set from all eternity, but in Isaiah, some 700 years before the birth of Christ, the suffering servant, the spotless lamb, was prophesied to be brought forth. And you know, in Isaiah 53, it so clearly speaks of Christ that even to this day, to this very day, there are Jewish people who are not very familiar with the Old Testament scriptures, and they believe that Isaiah 53 is part of the New Testament. So precisely and so perfectly fulfilled in the life of Christ, it could be no other. Even as John the Baptist testified, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. How deep the Father's love for us How vast beyond all measure That He should give His only Son To make a wretch His treasure How great the pain of searing loss The Father turns His face away As wounds which mar the chosen one Bring many sons to glory have paid my rent 
Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So you could not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Jesus came to this earth on a mission. And that mission was to become the head of a redeemed humanity, to inherit a new heavens and a new earth filled with men and women who were made new. But in order to do this, Jesus had to obey the Father's will completely in life and in death. Jesus did this in life by obeying and fulfilling all the law perfectly. He fulfilled all righteousness in his life, keeping the law at every point. And in his death, he obeyed the Father's will by absorbing the curse wrought on man by their first covenant head. That first man was Adam, who was created as a son of God and was placed in a paradise garden, who was tasked with exercising God's rule over all creation by conquering the enemy, the serpent, through obedience to the word of God. And of course, Adam, that first man, failed to take dominion He failed to obey the word of God, and he failed to defeat the enemy. And because of this, he brought a curse not only on all creation, but for all of his offspring, we were cursed and condemned to eternal death. It's what we deserve. We were made sinners. We were given a sinful nature, and so our whole lives are spent in sin and in rebellion against God, which deserves nothing 
but eternal death and curse. And it's this very curse brought by Adam that Jesus was given the mission of reversing. Instead of the created Son of God, Jesus is the only begotten eternal Son of God who took on the nature of a creature. He took on human flesh. Unlike Adam, Jesus lived in perfect innocence, never sinning one time, obeying the word of God and the law of God at every point. And yet, the sinless life of Jesus was not enough to reverse Adam's curse. It wasn't enough for Jesus simply to refrain from sinning. It wasn't enough. His sinless life was not enough for him to defeat the enemy. In order to reverse Adam's curse, Jesus had to suffer its consequences in full. He had to take on God's wrath against sin. And here in the Garden of Gethsemane, is Jesus' moment of obedience. It's true that when Jesus was taken to the cross, he went silently like a lamb that was led to slaughter and he did not put up a fight. But what we read here of Jesus in the garden is most certainly a fight. We have to remember that Jesus was tempted in every way as we are tempted, yet without sin. And so like Adam, Jesus was tempted to disregard the command of his father. He was tempted to disobey the word, the decree that he would take on the wrath of God and bear the curse. Jesus suffered temptation to abandon his mission before it was complete. Temptation not to drink the cup of wrath that was set before him. We're told earlier in Matthew's gospel, after Jesus is tempted in the wilderness by Satan, that Satan left him and waited for an opportune moment. Indeed, this is the opportune moment. This is the time for Satan to come and tempt the Lord, even as he tempted the Lord in the wilderness. Remember, Satan said, if you bow down and worship me, if you disregard the will of your father, if you acknowledge me as the authority instead of your father, then I'll give you all the nations of the earth. We have to believe that Jesus was tempted in the same way here, to disregard the authority of the father and to go and take Satan's route to authority and dominion instead of suffering the curse of sin and inheriting the nations for his obedience. And yet, where Adam stayed silent, where Adam refused to intervene when the serpent tempted Eve, where Adam compromised the authority of God, where he refused to get between his wife and the devil and say, get behind me, Satan, where Adam failed to crush the serpent and protect God's holy kingdom. Jesus prayed to the Father, 
Jesus committed himself to the Father's will. He acknowledged his duty to obey, and he placed himself into submission under his Father's command. He met the enemy. Unlike Adam, who refused to meet the enemy, Jesus Christ went before the throne of the Father and did battle in prayer against the enemy. And notice also what his disciples were doing. His disciples are like Adam or like us, not watchful, easily falling into temptation, easily distracted and ultimately disobedient as they continued to fall asleep when Jesus commanded them to watch and pray with him. Think about Peter, who had just been told by Jesus that he was going to deny him later that night. Peter, of all people, who knew that Satan was trying to tempt him and was seeking to sift him like wheat. Peter should have been in the battle, engaged in prayer, guarding himself from that temptation. But instead he slept and took his rest. Just like Adam, who should have confronted the devil, but instead lagged behind. Yet Jesus Christ, staring down the agony of God's wrath that he knew was coming, he understood the fullness of the Father's wrath against sin, and in this he did battle against the devil through prayer, just like in the wilderness when he went to the word and authority of God. So here in the garden, he goes to the word and the authority of his Father in prayer. And so he is ultimately able to say, your will be done. And so he was able to accomplish what Adam failed to do in the garden centuries and centuries before by crushing the tempter and going forward to bear the curse of sin.
So he then handed him over to them to be crucified. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two other men, one on either side, and Jesus in between. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier, and also the tunic now. The tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was there. So they put a sponge of full sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. We will use this portion of scripture to discuss Christ's finished work on the cross. Before we discuss his finished work, let's ask ourselves, what work did Christ set out to accomplish? Simply stated, the will of his father. In John chapter 4, when Jesus finished his discussion with the woman at the well, his disciples urged him to eat. Jesus, however, said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. In John chapter 6, he gives us a little more insight into what the will of his father is. Jesus said, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who beholds the son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. This could only be accomplished through the cross. 
We've heard about the sure prophetic word and also the victory in the garden. Now we have arrived at a time when through the night, false witnesses were brought forth to testify against Jesus, but no testimony was found credible. And when questioned about the accusations brought against him, he remained silent. He only responded in defense of his deity, his kingdom, and the power of God in heaven above at whose right hand he would sit. Those closest to him denied and abandoned him, but he was never alone, for the Father was with him. He was delivered over by his enemies to the governor, Pontius Pilate, who could find no fault in him, but still he had Jesus scourged. He was flogged. A crown of thorns was twisted and put on his head. A robe was placed on him. He was mocked, struck with hands, and presented to the crowd who spoke with loud voices saying, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate chose to please the crowd, and instead of setting the innocent Jesus Christ free, he sentenced the Savior to death. Christ was flogged again, this time worse than the first, because now he received the beating reserved for criminals. The mocking continued. They spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. Jesus was then led away to be crucified. Christ bearing his cross went out, and it is now on the cross that we will focus our attention. The weight of the cross was too heavy for Christ to carry. The cross was laid on Simon of Cyrene to carry it behind Jesus. The cross was delivered to Golgotha, the place of a skull, and it was here that Jesus was crucified. The soldiers gave Jesus sour wine mixed with gall to drink, but when he had tasted it, he would not drink it. This drink would have deadened the pain that Christ felt and could have dulled his senses before he completed his work of atonement, but he would have none of it. The Messiah's bruised and battered body was placed on the cross. Nails were driven through his hands and through his feet. They crucified our Savior. The work, however, was not yet complete. Whenever Jesus was nailed to the cross, the first words that he uttered were, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Amazingly, Jesus shows his compassion even in the face of excruciating pain. Most astounding is the fact that Christ was asking the Father's forgiveness on their behalf, not for what they were doing to him, but for the offense that they were committing against the Father whom Christ adored. The mocking of the Lamb of God continued. He was reviled even by the thieves who were crucified beside him until one of them, by the grace of God, came to his senses and said, do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, 
Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. To which Jesus replied, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. How mighty Jesus Christ is to save even the worst of sinners. How glorious is the Savior who saved this thief freely, completely, and he quickly made him fit to be in paradise with him forever. Jesus then looked to his mother and to the apostle John and said, woman, behold your son. And to John, he said, behold your mother. In his dying hours, Christ was concerned with the care for his mother. He entrusted the care for her to John. While he was dying, he was still instructing as to how we are to care for our parents whom the Lord has given us. This is also a lesson for how we, the church, should care for all those who are in need. Now, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, the sun was darkened and there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? It is here that the full weight of the work which Jesus set out to do was felt by him. For even when he was going through the false accusations against him, the scourgings, the beatings, the mocking, the father's presence was still felt by him. Now, The father abandoned him. For it is in this hour that the father, for our sake, made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Whenever Christ cried out, there was no response from God in heaven, who in times past had said from above, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. But now, nothing. Silence and darkness continued on. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. In order for that to happen, the father could not smile upon his beloved son when his son became sin. The separation was real. So too was the wrath that God poured out upon his son for the sin of his elect. Sin past, present, and future. 
the father's wrath was fully exhausted on his son. So why then did God forsake his son? He forsook his son for you. Now, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Here we see the humanity of our Savior. For this is a cry common to mankind who is nearing death. Christ suffered pains as we do. Thirst is a real pain that we as human beings experience. But think for a moment. The one who is the maker of the waters. The one from whom springs a well of water up to eternal life. Now thirsts. Let us see his humanity and how close to us the Lord has become. He condescended from on high and put himself in a place of shame and suffering for our sakes. He was denied water and offered a sponge filled with sour wine. Though he thirsted for water. Christ's greater thirst was from his heart to save men. The work was now complete and Christ cried out with a loud voice in the full awareness of mind. It is finished. All types, promises and prophecies were fully accomplished in him. The covenant was now made doubly sure. The whole book, both the law and the prophets, was finished in him. His perfect obedience to God was finished, an obedience that was necessary to fulfill the law of God. It is finished. The debt owed to God was paid, for God's justice and mercy met at the cross of Jesus Christ. All the dregs of hell were drank to the full by Jesus Christ. Not one of his children will ever need to taste it. On the cross, the power of Satan, sin, and death was defeated. May we live in continual remembrance of the work that was done on our behalf and remind ourselves it is finished. Jesus Christ, who is of infinite value, in the short period of time on the cross, satisfied the penalty that an eternity in hell cannot satisfy. What a wonderful Savior. It is finished. Finally, Jesus said, Father, into your hand I commit my spirit. Christ gave up his spirit to the only one who could restore him to the glory from which he came. Now, may we live our lives to the fullness of the glory of the shepherd of our souls, the Messiah, Jesus Christ.
You're now dismissed. <laughs>